0: Welcome to Season 7 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a fascinating journey into the lives of top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories many you've never heard before. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow this podcast through our new partnership with Last Word on Sports. Just go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcast. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly presented by Mr. Duct, Chicagoland's premier comprehensive air duct cleaning and ventilation for residential and commercial properties. They're upfront and honest. Find them on the web at MrDuctCleaning.com. This week we feature stories from four prominent Chicago
1: sports writers. I said, Ernie, your cousin? Wait a second. You, Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub, and OJ Simpson are cousins? The starting
2: pitcher determines the music, but in the Cubs Clubhouse, Sammy determined the music.
3: I, I happen to look up and at that moment I, I, I see a foul ball coming off his bat, straight back at me.
4: Finally they get to the area where I'm sitting and out pops
0: Jennifer Beals. Storytellers come in all shapes and sizes and writers are great examples because their jobs are to tell stories. Over the past five decades, these four writers have told countless stories and they're here to share some of them. So David Haw, Teddy Greenstein, Rick Morrissey and Bob Sakamoto tell me a story I don't know. We begin with David Haw, currently a co-host on the Mully and Haw Morning Show on WSCR The Score, an all-sports radio station in Chicago. Haw spent many years at the Chicago Tribune, where in fact all of our guests did at one time. Haw relates two baseball stories, one with White Sox legend
1: Minnie Minoso and the other with Cubs legend Ernie Banks. Let's start with Ernie because Ernie was a guy that I ended up having a very unique relationship with and I never would have guessed it. Growing up a Cub fan in Northwest Indiana, I did not ever expect to know Ernie Banks in the way that I ended up knowing him. Long story short, in 2005, my job at the Tribune was as the enterprise writer. Still one of the best jobs I ever had. Basically, I was between being the beat guy at the Tribune and then columnist in the wake of the news columnist. And I was for a couple of years, the enterprise guy. They'd send me to Drop of a hat, cover a Duke lacrosse trial in North Carolina or a funeral in Louisiana. They sent me to Japan for uh, a week to follow around Sadahara O. And on this trip, they sent me to California to spend some time with Ernie Banks because the Tribune had never done really a deep dive 5,000 word style story on Ernie Banks. So I was fortunate enough to do that. And we were in Marina Del Rey, and he wanted to meet at the Ritz-Carlton, where he was like the mayor of Marina Del Rey. Everybody knew Ernie. He did not know a stranger, and he was great. This is kind of an aside, but every, everybody who, who would come up to his company, he would say, how's your husband? Or how's your wife? Uh, how's your mother-in-law? And Ernie like would take great interest in strangers or acquaintances' marriages or their courtship, because... I would I asked him about this during our interview because it happened so often when I was around him. And then he finally explained, he's like, Well, I want to get to know these people because I want to go to their weddings. Because at my age, and he was just turned 75, at my age, my goal every year is to go to more weddings and funerals. And so, worthy goal. So we we start talking, and Ernie's we're in the we're in the back area, beautiful day. And he gets going about everything from, you know, breaking the color barrier to things he dealt with in Chicago to being the spokesperson and, you know, everything about being Mr. Cub, which is just, I'm, in, I'm engrossed because he could tell a story and he was just a great personality. I know you know that. We got the set in. Sunshine, fresh air. We got the team behind us. So let's play two. So story at the time about uh, O.J. Simpson had a headline and it said, O.J. Simpson remembered Ernie Banks uh, denying his autograph request uh, outside Candlestick Park one day when O.J. was a kid. And, you know, back in those back in 2005, anything involving O.J. Simpson's kind of sensationalistic headline, it got some attention and it just so happened to be one of those things on TMZ or whatever that day. So I asked Ernie Banks about it and he went into this whole thing. He says, that can't be right. He's lying. I never would do that. I never would do that. Why would I ever do that in general? But why would I ever do that to my cousin? I said, Ernie, your cousin. Wait a second. You Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub and OJ Simpson are cousins. He says, yes, we are. And Er, George, you know, Ernie Banks, he will pull your leg. If you let him pull your leg, he will tell he will fib if you let him kind of fib, if you if, but this was him dead serious. And I was like, Ernie, I don't believe you. He goes, I'm telling the truth. And he goes, you don't believe me? Hold on a second. Gets out of his phone. And I'm sitting there waiting. He's got a cell phone. He's like, he dials numbers. Mama? Called his mom, 93 years old in, in Dallas, Texas. Mama, I'm sitting here with my friend David. I want you to tell him how OJ and I are related. And so he hands me the phone, put it on speakerphone. She goes into this whole story. (laughs) I don't remember exactly the family tree, but so-and-so was related to so-and-so who had a son, who had a daughter. They were second cousins. I confirmed it with another family member, Ernie Banks and OJ Simpson. According to Ernie Banks and his family lineage and the the records that he had to show up, and O.J. Simpson were, fa- were were second cousins, and I can't imagine a more talented family tree than that. Because that, and, and I don't think anybody knew about it. I included it in the story uh, as kind of I told that story, got some reaction to it, and somebody along the line had said, "Oh yeah, that that's the case." We always thought he was kidding about that, but he wasn't kidding about that. Ernie Banks, O.J. Simpson related. I, I was floored by that. I thought that was an interesting little thing. You, things you don't think you. You think you know everything about a guy. You think you know everybody's background. But I didn't know that about Ernie Banks. So that's the Ernie story. Manny Minosa was the other one. 2015 in December, I was uh, privileged to go. Major League Baseball had a delegation of, of, of officials and they, media members from certain markets to go to Havana, Cuba, to try to... Uh, promote the game, try to promote the relationship between the two countries. It was back when it was, you know, the, the avenues were wider open for access back and forth. They were trying to increase that. It was during um, the Obama administration, and that was a priority. Major League Baseball was part of that initiative. And so they picked like eight players from Major League Baseball, uh, yourself Puig, John Jay, Jose Abreu from Chicago, some other people as well. So From the Chicago media, print media, I went to chronicle Jose Abreu's return to Havana. And he was being reunited with his son that he left. If you remember the story, it was a great reunion. It was an emotional story. You know, from a writer's standpoint, it's all you could want, especially that kind of access. Jose Abreu in Havana being treated like a rock star a year after, two years after he had left. So this is December, 2015, and you know, George, I mean, you're trying to be resourceful. You're trying to do a little bit of everything. Hey, I'm gonna be in Cuba. And the Tribune's like, why, why don't you try to do something else while you're there? Let's try to see what Minnie, Minnie Minoso uh, is still remembered in Cuba. And so in Havana, especially, because that's where he was from. I think he had just passed away a few months earlier. And so we were going to try, I was going to try in the spare time that we did have, we didn't have a lot because of the delegation, to find out what I could about Minnie Minoso. I had heard he had the house that he grew up in, the house that he owned or that he lived in was still there intact. And I had heard that from a family member in Chicago that she was still living there. So I thought, okay, I got in touch with this family member before I left. They gave me an address, it meant nothing to me because it was sort of in a different, you know, it's not like uh, 108 State Street. It wasn't anything like that. It was in a different sort of format where I thought if I have the time, I'm going to try to track this down. I go to the cab driver outside of our downtown Havana hotel room uh, or hotel, give him the address, and he nods his head. I don't speak very good Spanish, uh, so but I just kind of can fake it. So he's nodding his head, and he's taking me on this. He speaks a little bit of English, and he says, not you don't want to go alone don't want to go alone it wasn't a great area per se i don't know that for sure but so he takes me to the corner of this block where we're supposed to and he points to the house and there's this green kind of bungalow uh and i think okay could that be it he doesn't i get out of the car i pay i get out of the cab i pay he waits there's Bike, people riding in bikes selling like vegetables in the, in the bike baskets. And it's a very undeveloped area and unde- in, a, in, a, in a neighborhood that you know has seen better days. But there's this house that looks pretty pristine actually next to a, what we would call in Chicago, a hot dog stand essentially. And I'm waiting, looking, I'm looking at my address. He's waiting, he, he gets out of the car because he's a little bit concerned for me, thankfully. Anyway, by the time I was looking at my phone and trying to figure things out, there's like 15, 20 people behind me. They're watching me because of course, I look like the tourist, I'm sure. They're watching me and I go up to the house, knock on the door, nobody's there. The neighbor comes out, asks me what I'm doing there. I tell her kind of the story. She speaks English. She was actually from New Jersey, I think. <clears throat> she says, oh yeah, she's sleeping. So I think, do I have the right house? I look right into the window, appear into the window by the door, and I see inside this huge portrait in the living room of Minnie Minoso. So I think, I've got the right house. <laughs> so these people are watching me. There's now crowds about 15 to 20 people out there. The lady comes to the door. It actually is his great niece. And I used the neighbor that I just met. She actually looked like David Letterman's mom, Dorothy. I can remember that. <laughs> he did the translating for me. And... She said that um, I told her what I wanted to do. I told her what I wanted to interview her. I walk in, she comes out, she said, excuse me, she comes out with Minnie Minoso's like, memorabilia from his major league career all in this box. And it was just unbelievable stuff.
4: seemed like uh, yesterday, my first time I came out here to play here, it's on May 1st, 1951. We played against the New York Yankees. i never forget. We lost, we lost in 42. But my first time at bat, the first preacher I hit a home run in the left field.
1: And we sat down there for about a half an hour, and I interviewed her about Minnie Minoso, not knowing that I was ever going to find any sort of connection to Minnie, but definitely worth the trip and made me feel like I should really learn Spanish. <laughs> From two legends to another, albeit
0: a tarnished one. Teddy Greenstein, now a senior editor at PointsBet and author of Quarterback Dads, remembered several stories with the egotistical Sammy Sosa.
2: George, Sammy was the gift that kept on giving, certainly for the fans, but also for media members because uh, huge ego and uh, certainly a guy who wanted to be treated like a superstar. So I think a classic moment there came it was the end of the 2002 season. Cubs are losing as usual. And this outfielder, Roosevelt Brown, calls me over and he says, Hey, did you hear about it yesterday? I said, No, what happened? He goes, Man, Sammy's boombox was on and Joe Girardi went and turned it off. Now, that might not sound like a big deal, but George, as you know, that boombox represented Sammy's power. And in most clubhouses, the starting pitcher determines the music. But in the Cubs clubhouse, Sammy determined the music even on the road he had one of his lackeys go around with a boombox so so the music was very important to Sammy so I say wow so okay so Girardi turned it off great I'll go and talk to him now Joe Girardi and I go back a long time both northwestern guys and considered him you know kind of a friend almost so I talked to Joe and he's like he's like yeah you know it wasn't that big a deal I'm a little older I don't like the loud music um you know, I thought Sammy was outside, so I thought it wouldn't be that big a deal, but it actually kind of was a big deal, and Sammy confronted him about it. So anyway, I told Joe, look, man, I'm going to write this up, but I'm not going to make a big deal about it. It'll be like the lead of my notebook. He says, okay, no problem. George, I wake up the next morning, and the lead story in the Chicago Tribune, the headline is Looney Tunes at Wrigley Field. <laughs> And I remember I show it to my wife, Nori, and I'm like, oh, God, this is going to be bad. And then on top of it, they're playing a day game the next day, which means, you know, there's no cool off time. And I got to be in the clubhouse at about 945 in the morning. So I go and walk in the clubhouse and immediately Sammy grabs my shoulder and he says, what the bleep was that? I was like, oh, God, this is even worse than I thought. And Joe Girardi is in a little scrum where a couple people are talking to him. And Joe looks at me and goes, Teddy, I'm not talking to you today. I'm not doing it. I'm like, wow, okay, even he's freezing me out. So I remember going over to Kerry Wood and just being like, hey, do you have a minute for Mr. Popularity over here? And my follow-up story was about how like the Atlanta Braves, you know, when they play music, it's with headphones. So nobody's ever offended by anybody's music. But George, the, the story has a pretty good postscript. So even though Girardi was really ticked to me that day, and I don't think I talked to him for the rest of the season because there were only a couple games left, I saw him backstage, at Chicago Tribune Live. And he said, you know what, Teddy? That story was great for me. Because around baseball, everybody read it and they saw that I stood up to Sammy. And so he got a lot of props for it. So it turned out to be uh, a nice deal and a happy ending, but not so much for Sammy, who looked like uh, the egomaniacal guy he is.
0: He was both really good to work with and not so good to work with, right? I totally agree. You know,
2: he was a guy who was available after every game guaranteed, never blew us off before most games. He was always available, but you had to be very careful with how you dealt with him. So, I mean, early on, I'm covering the Cubs and I thought I could joke with him because usually guys, you know, just to screw around in the clubhouse after a game. And I said, um, I said, yeah, man, that official score, man, he did you a solid, right? That was, uh, he gave you a base hit. It probably should have been an E6. And Sammy turns <laughs> to me and goes, oh, you official score now, buddy. And I thought he was <laughs> still joking. So I said, uh, I said, yeah, you know, the official score, I'm the announcer, I write the stories. He cuts me off and he says, you want to take a hit away from me? I'm I'm like, Sammy, I'm just kidding around. He goes, he goes I got no words for you. I have no words for you. And he walks away. <laughs> so that was a good one. And I got one other Classic short Sammy story for you. George Castle walks up to him uh, and says, hey, Sammy, you you hit 325 last year. What are you going to do for an encore? This was in spring training. Sammy sees me in the corner of his eye and says, hey, you must be talking to that guy. I hit 328 last year. (laughs) It just speaks to Sammy's, the fact that he knows his stats that well and that he would suddenly process that, oh yeah, George must be talking to Teddy a total... You know, hater because George is uh, lopping three points off his batting average.
0: You are correct. He had an ego the size of Cleveland,
2: <laughs> and plus the suburbs of Cleveland. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the other one that I love—it's—it's it's in spring training, two thousand one, and we're all supposing that Sammy is going to sign a contract extension. He's definitely obsessed with it, and it's his big—it's um, his big modus operandi at that point. So I talked to one of our photographers and during spring training, the photographer was just sort of on the field taking pictures and the Cubs are about to play the A's and Sammy is stretching and and chirping. And Sammy says to one of the Oakland A's quote, any day now. So this photographer does me a super solid and tells me about this. And he says, do it at what you want but I can tell you that's what he said. So I talked to Sammy's agent. And I find out that, you know, the, con- the contract extension is pending, is coming soon. Uh, the next day, Mike Kylie, the Sun-Times beat writer, he got beat on the story, so he was really pissed. So he chats with Sammy, and they decide that they're going to knock down the story, so-, so Kylie doesn't look bad. So we're in this scrum, and Sammy points to me here and, and famously says, my friend here, he say I say something I know say. <laughs> I thought was hilarious and then a couple days later he signs the extension and Phil Arvia asks him he says uh, hey Sammy how can you justify wanting all this money 18 million dollars a year when the average guy's making only 50 grand and Sammy says uh, a lot of people complain but uh, if they had my shoe they would want the same maybe worse if they had my shoe became something we uh, we said a lot that season.
3: Chicago I love you.
4: One more thing that I want to say. Baseball being very, very good to me.
0: Those were wonderful stories about Sammy Sosa. Here's another. You have a book out entitled Quarterback Dads. Tell me a story I don't know about it.
2: Yeah, George. Um, one of the ones that stands out is the Clemson starting quarterback, DJ Uyangalale. Um, His dad is Big Dave. And his dad tweets so relentlessly that um, his own son blocks him on Twitter. so I I think if uh his own son blocks him on Twitter blocks him on Twitter he just can't handle all the tweeting so for all the dads out there if you are (laughs) tweeting so relentlessly that your own kid doesn't want to hear it you're probably going overboard um so that's certainly one and then the other I mean there are tons of interesting stories but I find this one compelling Todd Marinovich you know who grew up really without a childhood because his father made him be a quarterback and didn't let him eat fast food or um, have a soda. You know, everything was geared toward becoming a quarterback. Now he has a son who wants to be a quarterback. Baron and Todd is totally conflicted on what to allow him to do because look, if you have a son who's a quarterback and you have all this knowledge, you want to give it to him because you want to protect him. You want to say, Hey, when you're staring at that defense, you want to know where everybody is, where all your receivers are going. That way you can get the ball out quicker and you're not going to get hurt. But Todd Marinovich, you know, who went through the ringer playing football and dealt with substance abuse, he he would rather his kid play tennis or play golf, or if he's going to play football, play wide receiver. So he's totally conflicted on what to do. Um, but the book was fun to do. I got some help from guys like Pat Fitzgerald and Brett Bielema. Who, uh, who give advice to dads and uh, Brett Bielema had the, the book quarterback dads on his desk and said he loved it and read it in two days. So hopefully people are enjoying it. And um, it's very digestible. It's just a lot of short chapters that you can kind of jump in and out. <music>
0: When's the last time you had your air ducts cleaned? Here's the best solution. Mr. Duct, a name Chicagoland has trusted for over 20 years. They work on your furnaces, air conditioners, and do repairs, maintenance, and installations. In other words, they're your all-around company for air quality choice and more. Mr. Duct provides on-site commercial ventilation cleaning estimates you'd be hard-pressed to find better. So give them a call at 888-4-MISTER-DUCT. That's 888-497-3828. And Mr. Duct is the right choice to clean your residential dryer vents. They do a full inspection to make sure your dryers are running properly. Mr. Duct works with schools, health facilities, and office buildings to make sure you're breathing clean air. Their testimonials are endless and with good reason. So don't think twice when you're ready to work on air ducts, dry vents, and so much more. Just think Mr. Duct. 888 for Mr. Duck. That's 888-497-3828. And find them on the web at Mr.DuckCleaning.com. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health
2: condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime.
0: Writing can be a dangerous proposition. Just ask Rick Morrissey, currently a very creative columnist for the Chicago Sun Times, who learned baseball and computers can have an adversarial relationship.
3: Let me preface this, George, by saying that I have a foul ball phobia. Okay, uh, I don't. I don't know if you share share it with me or, or 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 I'm the only one in the world. I have no idea, but I have a foul ball phobia. So l- let me explain and and. I I can't actually pinpoint exactly when it happened, but I can tell you when it escalated. Um, I was at a a spring training game with my son. This must have been 2001. One of my sons, we were at a Cubs-Rockies game, and we got tickets right along the third base line. And uh, it's funny because my son, what what he remembers is that, you know, Jeff Cirillo, the third baseman at the time for the Rockies, uh, came over, and, and tossed they were doing the warm-up the warm-up mm-hmm. you know so he came over and tossed the ball into the stands right to my son so that's what my son remembers what i remember is screaming foul balls coming <laughs> uh, down the third baseline skipping off the you know the dugout and i i i, I i've never been so frightened for my son and for anybody you know he had his glove with him and i'm thinking yeah that's going to be a lot of help for a 10 year old kid you know that this is really gonna so my head is like on a swivel and i i we made it through on skates and, and I, I just, I, I carried that around with me as like uh, ever since. So fast forward, I guess it'd be a, maybe a year later, I went up to uh, Milwaukee to do a, a Cubs Brewers game. And I think it was one of the first years of Miller Park. And this was, this must've been early on because the, the press box was right behind home plate. And as you know, George, uh, we've gotten away from that. We we don't matter anymore, right? Sports writers, uh, uh, radio people.
0: No, radio people are now in another county. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well,
3: that's what it feels like. So they move. <laughs> they keep moving us down, like uh, uh, down the foul line. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it's like in uh, Animal House when the the guys keep trying to. To rush the frats and they keep putting him the, the cool frat and they keep putting them off in a side room. That's what that's basically what we are now. So anyway, th- th- this was right behind home plates. And I get there and I, I notice where my seat is that right behind I'm in the first row and, and the second row is a level up. But I noticed that there's like craters in the wall uh behind me. So I just really hadn't paid much attention to that. Mm. Anyway, I I start writing my column and and I don't know how you do it, George, but half the time we're, we're writing during the game. We're not, we're not even looking at the game. I don't think people understand that, you know, and this was a day game, but still, you know, you're, you're trying to write your column, you start your column, you've done interviews before the game, you know, a game in in, early in the season, middle of the season, you're you're not really writing about the game too much because Mm -hmm. there's 162 of them. So your your head's down and, and you're typing away and um here I am and I'm, I'm sitting there typing and all of a sudden I I I look up and Richie Sexton from the uh, uh hard hitting first baseman I think for the mm-hmm. Brewers at the time I I happen to look up and at that moment I, I I see a foul ball coming off his bat straight back at me and you know you're sort of I'm sort of cracking it. And I'm thinking, oh, no, no, that, no, no, that, that's not <laughs> happening. This can't be happening. So uh, I don't know if you've seen that scene though, in, in, in Seinfeld where George is at the kids party, a little kids party, and he walks into the kitchen and there's a fire. He knows there's smoke, there's fire. He comes running out of, of, of the, the kitchen pushes aside the clown uh, a woman, an old woman, and, and a walker, throws, pushes aside kids uh, to get to the door, knocks them aside, and gets out. Uh, um, and that's that's how I felt. Uh, I, I'm like, I am out of my seat. There was nobody near me, thank God. But I am out, uh, and I'm I'm. If there were, I would have knocked them aside. For there's no <laughs> doubt. So now I'm I'm I'm. I, I think in that split second, I'm starting to understand what those holes were in the wall and why. Just behind my seat, there must have been three of them. So anyway, the ball doesn't hit the wall. It hits my laptop. And so it hits the the flipped up part of my laptop, smashes it down. And it falls, tumbles like somersaults behind off the desk onto the ground. And of course, everybody's laughing in the press box. And uh, I am not laughing. (laughs) I'm not laughing because I've got a bad feeling about this. I got a bad feeling that about 700 words of really bad sports writing has has <laughs> bitten the dust. So I I pick it up, and I I kind of slowly open it. Like, oh God, I you know what am I going to see here? And sure enough, the the screen itself looks like a a, a lava lamp. You know, it's, it's it's cracked, and there's all sorts of. I don't even know what's going on, you know,
1: swing and that's foul straight back and off my computer. Oh my goodness. That just happened. So my computer is uh, completely cracked. I tried to put my hand up and stop the
2: baseball and it went straight back. And now that one almost came back. And this became just became one of the worst days I have had in quite some time.
3: I'm thinking, geez, what? What now? You know what? There's, what can I do now? You know, there's, there's, I can I can I write a column on my? I probably had a BlackBerry at the time, you know, and I'm thinking, I, I'm I'm kind of flustered at this point because I, you know, I'm screwed. Uh, and so, as luck would have it, for some reason, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel kept an extra laptop at the ballpark. They had wow. little cubbies. There. Yeah, they kept had little cubbies you could lock up stuff. So Drew Olson, who was, a I I think the longtime um, uh, baseball writer, Brewers writer at the time comes over to me and says, uh, you know, we have an extra a laptop. Would you, would you like to borrow it? And I said, yeah, that, that, that would be great. You know, um, you, you're saving me, you know, and it, it drew, of course, I think is now radio host in Milwaukee's gone to the smart side and made his living doing that. <laughs> Um, so anyway, oh, I'm sitting there. You know, I'm trying to compose myself. I got their laptop, and and I'm thinking, well, I could try to reprise whatever I wrote. And I, you know, I don't know what what it is. You know, I I I, I kind of vaguely, obviously remember. And I've got the I've got the interviews. I could do that. And I'm thinking, but this is this is kind of an opportunity here, mm-hmm. you know, isn't it, Rick? You know, it looks like a, you know you idiot. So. <laughs> Uh, I started writing and the first sentence was something like there I was minding my own business <laughs> paragraph. Okay. So I wrote an entire column about my, my laptop being in the laptop fetal position on the, on the ground, you know, and I, you know, George, I cannot for the life of me find this column anywhere. I can't find it on the internet, but it, it was, I enjoyed it so much. I, I enjoyed doing that column. Uh, just because it was different, and I was thinking, you know, I I didn't cave into, you know, I know my sports writing brother are going to say, what what's he writing about himself for? What what you know what a what an ego? What's he what's he writing about his laptop? You know, and I I kind of got that, and I I had to get past that um, a little bit, but but anyway, as it turns out, that column ended up winning an Associated Press sports writers uh, column. I think I. Had to, send it three or four of my columns. So it was like a, I finished in the top five or something in in the country for sports columns. And that, that was one of them. Just wow. started, oh, so Well, there's a, there's, there's a nice, so you just got to be, you think out of, let think outside of the box. But what I, to this day, what, what bothers me about that is I don't think I brought that computer down to show Richie Sexton. And I don't, for the life of me, I don't know why I didn't go down to get it signed, whatever, you know, that, that's taboo, of course, to get an autograph, but I thought, well, after the fact, you know, that would be a, a exception, you know, that you would want to do. And, and I'm not sure why it didn't go down. I, I would, I would hope that Richie Sexton would have had a good sense of humor about it. Cause I did, you know, and, and had a lot of fun with it in, in, in the column. But, uh, but from then on, you know, it's like every time I, I, I'm at a game now, like, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking, okay, where, 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 am I, where could the foul ball is so, you know, if you're if you're uh, along the left field line, if the press box is along the left field line, well, then you're worried about left-handed hitters. You if you're along along the third base line, you're worried about foul balls, screaming foul balls from lefties. You know, and, and so I, I'll tell you though, I've written a number of columns, um, and this isn't really funny, but I've written a number of columns about hey, they got to do something about this. You know, um, I, I've probably written ten columns in in. 20 years about, they got to put nets up because somebody's going to get killed. Um, And I'm not talking about the press box. We, we obviously have enough time to react, but along those first base and third base, they don't. And they, they have put up netting. And I, I, I don't think I played a part in that at all, but I, I understood the importance of it. And, and, you know, this is, this is a hole in their game and I understand that it affects, it affects the, the experience for people. Mm-hmm. But if you ever look down <clears> the signs, people are not paying attention at all. They're drinking a beer, they're looking at their phone. And even if they were paying attention, I don't know that how people could have the reflexes to to do that. Escape um, so, to
0: escape a screaming line drive. This yes. my first thinking about Richie Sexton and the fact that you could never find that column. Mm-hmm. I believe word is that he hacked your column.
3: He could have, he could have, he said this, I've read your, he said, I've read your stuff before. And this this is a crime, crime against baseball and sports writing, but I, 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 I it's not probably a phobia, but I, I do, I'm aware of it. I am aware of it for sure. There's no doubt. I'm, 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 you know, like I said, if my head were up, you'd have time to, to react.
4: Mm-hmm. If your
3: head down, heads down and you're writing, you know, you might be able to get it. Now, I don't really know if anybody's got nailed by one. And and I don't think we're in the real any war. I think we have time to react up there. Mm-hmm. Milwaukee, there was no time to react.
0: If you want to hear more guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, all you have to do is go to Last Word on Sports on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, You can listen to the many wonderful interviews we've done dating back to January of 2021. Finally, a very memorable assignment for Bob Sakamoto, a 30-year veteran at the Tribune who recently retired as the Assistant Athletic Director of Communications at DePaul University. It involved the 1987 NBA playoff and a matchup of a different kind at both the Los Angeles
4: Forum and the Boston Garden. So I look into the the crowd on all the VIP seating, and I see Jack Nicholson, and I see uh, all the normal Hollywood stars that are big-time Laker fans are all there. And then I saw in that crowd there, I recognized Jennifer Beals, who was one of the hottest up-and-coming young stars in Hollywood just several years earlier she had done a movie called Flashdance, which people of my generation remember. She was just like the hottest young actress coming up in that movie. Actually, they're very close. It's just the next lifeless planet over. Really, it was pretty boring, except for maybe music.
3: Uh, they have music in Altoona?
4: Well, my father, he loves music. And it turned out that movie, surprisingly enough, was the third highest grossing movie that year. So they made that much money, was that popular, and it skyrocketed, Jennifer, to stardom. At the time that I saw her at the Lakers game, she was 23 years old. I'm in my early 30s, so we're sort of the same generation. Of course, I knew that she went to Francis Parker High School and grade school, right in the Lincoln Park area. I'm from Lincoln Elementary School, so I have that connection. We always have this stereotype that Parker girls always were too good for Lincoln school guys, so we never tried to go out with them, no chance with the Parker girls. So anyway, there she is sitting in the crowd, not wearing anything special, either I failed to notice it or sometimes you don't even see these things in a crowd, but I just assumed that she was a Laker fan because everybody else was there as a Laker fan, all the Hollywood stars. So in my notes that night, you do the game story, then you do a little notebook, I said that the Lakers had their big entourage of hollywood stars and i listed all of them and i listed jennifer beals as a laker fan i think it was the next day early in the morning i got an email from a woman who was said to be jennifer beals mom i don't know jennifer beals mom i don't know her email address but in the email she said to me she kind of had fun with me and said oh boy you're in for it now when my daughter gets a hold of you she is a die hard celtics fan and everybody in our family, all her friends, we've been just ridiculing her nonstop all day today about all this stuff. I'm thinking, oh, how, how sensitive can she be? It's, I made an honest mistake, no big deal. And I said to, uh, in an email back to um, Jennifer's mom, I'll try to meet, you know, print a correction in the next paper as soon as I can to get something up there. So that was taken care of. I jump on my flight, head back to Boston, It's like, I don't know, four, five, six hours. It's a long flight. So I'm in hotel, but I still want to grab a quick nap. So I'm in there sleeping in the hotel, and the phone rings halfway through my my nap. And it wakes me up a little groggy, and I get to the phone, answer it, say hello. And uh, this person says, I'd like to speak to Mr. Bob Sakamoto. Now, the first tip-off should be that anybody who calls me Mr., that's this nap someone that knows me, obviously. So I'm, I'm half sleep, half asleep anyway. So I'm like thinking, well, who is this person calling me? It's too formal. And I said, this is him, this is him. And she goes, uh, this is Jennifer Beals. And I'd like to talk to you about a mistake you made in your story in, in this morning, Chicago Tribune. And I started waking up a little bit and thought to myself, oh, that's right. Somebody professing to be Jennifer Beals' mom emailed me this morning and started this whole thing then i'm thinking to myself again i'm half asleep half groggy you know what this is a prank someone's pulling on me because the nba national writers all the guys travel cover the nba they're full of guys that love to people all over just enjoy pranking each other having a good time on this you know nba final junket so that's my first thought so i'm thinking and, and jennifer goes on to talk some more and everything telling me how she's been a diehard Celtics fan since this and that and everything else. And she was embarrassed and, you know, all this other stuff. And the longer she talked, the more kind of irritated I got. Because this person on the other end of the line, not realizing, I just took a transcontinental flight over to the East Coast here. I'm I'm tired. I'm, I'm sleeping in a nap. And she's cutting into my nap time. So I'm starting to get a little irritated. So I finally at one point said, Miss, I don't know who you are. This is the second reference I've had today to Jennifer Beals. And I, I think someone's just playing a prank on me. Did someone put you up to making this phone call? Right after I said that, I had one of the more bone chilling moments in my life where just reality smacks you in the face and you, you get a little tingled in your body like, oh my God, something's going on here. Because the next words out of her mouth were just so dripping with ice in the veins, kind of venom and just hatred and anger just coming out of this woman. And she said, Mr. Sakamoto, this really is Jennifer Beals. And, and <laughs> a tone of voice in, in, in such a way that just, oh my God, it, I, I just, I realized, okay, this is, has to be her. I mean, in hindsight, later on in the day, I thought to myself, well, if it was someone pulling a prank, I'm gonna go along with it because it's the greatest actress in the world because this person really played the role. So at that point, I realized, okay, this, this must be the real Jennifer Beals. And then I apologized and said, I'm sorry. I woke you up in the middle of a nap. I'm covering the NBA finals with a bunch of guys who love the pool pranks. They've been doing it throughout the series. And I thought I was being the latest victim and you were just somebody helping with this prank. So she said, oh, no, I would never do anything like that. She was 23 years old at the time, still kind of naive to show business in the world around her. This was her first big movie, her first time she became a big star. So all that was new to her too. So we're going back and forth having a normal conversation now, and at this point I say to myself, and I did a quick pivot and a quick turnaround to kind of salvage the situation. I said, Jennifer, you know, you're such a, a huge diehard Celtics fan. Is there any chance you're coming out to watch our games three, four, and five in Boston? She said, absolutely. I'm taking a flight, the early flight out in the morning. I'll be there, you know, late afternoon and head right to Boston Garden. I wouldn't miss this for the world. I'm that big of a fan. I'll be, And she goes, this time I'll be wearing my Boston Celtics jersey. You'll be able to tell who I am. Because apparently she wasn't wearing it the first time, which contributed to my mistake. So anyway, I said, okay, that's great, Jennifer. Um, I'll be there covering the game. And I said, I tell you what, if I can work this out, would you, would you be okay with sitting next to me on press row, which is right on court side and watching the game? And she's like, oh my God, you could really do that? So I made arrangements. I said, just come to the will call window. We'll have your press pass there and then in your name, and then see if someone can escort you you know, onto the court and to the media section and I'll have, we'll have a seat next to me. So she said, great, that's gonna be wonderful. Um, Thank you so much for this, and you could tell right then and there, she was getting over the hurt, the embarrassment, all the ridicule she was receiving, and starting to get excited about this whole possibility. I end up that morning um, contacting Brian and saying, Brian, um, I know I have a bit of an unusual request, but I'm hoping you can help me out here. I got in touch with Jennifer Beals, the actress from Flashdance. I made a mistake in the story, and I've since printed the correction. And I called her a Lakers fan when she's really a Celtics fan, and I feel bad about that. So I asked her if she would like to sit next to me on press row for game three. And if you could set that press pass up, that'd be wonderful. And Brian's first reaction, and George, you would know this, you know Brian very well, was a moment of stunned silence. And that, it takes a lot to, to silence <laughs> a gregarious, outgoing, fun loving guy like Brian. Brian he, he's got quick for everything. He's got a comeback for everything. He's very sharp. And then he comes back to me and says, you know what, Sako? I'll tell you what I can do. Not only will I leave a press pass for Jennifer Beals for you and sit her next to you on courtside, but I'll go one better than that. I'm gonna leave one for Elvis Presley, too, and put him <laughs> on the other side of me on the pressway. <laughs> and you'll have both of them there. The chances of one being there, are, to me, are about as good as the other. So have at it, have a great time. I'll set you all up." And then you just started laughing, and I'm sitting there going, all right, all right, all right, Brian, okay, you don't believe me, that's fine. If you get me the press pass, that's fine. So we ended there. Unbeknownst to me, everybody knows this outlandish, crazy request, this naive sports writer from Chicago actually thinking that a, a, one of the hottest Hollywood stars in, in America is gonna show up at a game, sit next to my press row and watch a game. So I, from that moment, once I got close to Boston Garden and started interacting with all the media, I was the butt of every joke. I was constantly being ridiculed, made fun of, sarcasm. I mean, all in good good fun because these guys are all none of these guys are mean or anything, but all in good fun. And everybody was having a great laugh at my expense. And I get ready, go to the game, and get to my media seat pregame, get all my pregame stuff done. It's about half an hour before tip-off and no Jennifer Beals yet. So I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe, you know, her flight got delayed or this and that. So the game starts, she's not there. Now guys got to focus on work. So at least that stuff abates. I'm, I'm back to my normal life covering the game. Late in the first quarter, I rem- I'll never forget this either, George. There was kind of a hubbub often of near one of the tunnels. And so everybody, a lot of people's attention were directed to this entrance there where there were a lot of, of flanks of security officers and police all around this one area. And Brian McIntyre could see his head right in the middle of that. So I'm thinking, boy, you know, is Brian involved with something? Hope he's okay. And so he, it's slowly coming towards the press section. And as it gets closer and closer to it, I realize it's Brian. And he's escorting somebody in the middle of this, but I can't really see. Finally, they get to the area where I'm sitting, and out pops Jennifer Beals. And Brian's acting all official and everything, and in his best, most professional voice, he goes, "Jennifer, here's the seat I've saved for you. You're sitting next to Tribune sports writer Bob Sakamoto. Enjoy the game. Contact me. Here's my phone number. Contact me if you need anything else." She comes over, sits next to me. I'm like, Jennifer, good to see you. I was thinking maybe you we weren't going to make it because it was getting kind of late. She said, oh no, my plane was delayed. I got, I got in late, rushed over as quick as I can. Here I am. She sat down and we started watching the game together. And George, I'll tell you what, all the ridicule and the fun I put up with, all that was all worth it. They can't believe that the story's true and this Saco guy from Chicago is actually sitting next to one of the hottest stars in Hollywood right there, and he's going to sit with her for all four quarters of a game. I'm trying to focus on the game, George, but at the same time, this conversation is so good that I'm all over the place, okay? I'm sure I made a few mistakes in the story and then put up the best story ever, but I was totally distracted, and and I wish I could have written a sidebar story saying, my night sitting in press row with Jennifer Beals, because that would have been a story that everybody in Chicago could have related to, as opposed to the Boston South Saskia Lakers, all the Bulls fans hate it anyway. So, an, an idea crosses my mind again. I said, I said to Jennifer, if the Celtics win, and if the players are okay with it, would you like to visit the locker room and meet in person, Bird, Parrish, McHale, all the heroes that you've been cheering for all your life?
0: And the Celtics are back in it.
2: Boston wins 109 to 103.
3: Only the second playoff loss this year for the Lakers.
4: And she's just like, again, the look in her face, she looked at me like, are you nuts? Are you crazy? There's just no way that's gonna happen. And she even said, well, you know, I don't know if they'd have, or they'd wanna meet someone like me, just being a Boston Celtic fan. I'm nobody special. These guys are real athletes in real life. They're real, in real people time. They are professional athletes, the best at their business, and they're doing what they're doing. What I'm doing is all make-believe. I simply pretend to be something. I'm not that girl in Flashdance. I'm not that person. I'm someone totally different. So that's not me. That's not reality. I, just, because I would be intimidated by, by, by Larry Bird. I wouldn't know what to say. So she did come down there with me. I went inside, did my post-game interviews with the guys. Came back up, I checked with, checked with Bird and Mikhail. I figured those are the two guys to check with first. I told them both that Jennifer Beals, the actress from Flashdance, is outside in the hallway, and she would love to come in and say hi and meet you. And of course, and my kids, yeah, bring her in, bring her in, no problem, we'll all be done with our showers, we'll be presentable, don't worry about it, bring her right in. So I'm, I'm trying to convince her to come in, she's resisting. Danny Ainge had meanwhile come out of the locker room to go visit with somebody, I was coming back to the locker room. I saw him and said, Danny, this is Jennifer Beals from Flashdance, do you remember the movie? He goes, of course, that was a wonderful movie. I really enjoyed it. I thought you did a great part. Those dance scenes were just unbelievable. He kept on talking about it. It made her feel better, relaxed her, she felt better. And I said, Danny, I just talked to Bird and Michaela in there, and they said they would love to have her come in. She wants to meet you, but she's really being shy about this. And Danny Ainge right away said, you know what, Bob, don't worry. Jennifer, come with me. He took her by the hand, brought her into the locker room physically, she didn't have she's kind of still trying to not go No, he brought her right in he wasn't taking no for an answer, brought her in the locker room, she went in there. She must have been talking to them about, about all kinds of stuff they probably want to talk to her about Hollywood stuff she wants to talk to them about basketball so they're having a great conversation, maybe it was 10 minutes maybe 15 I don't know I kind of lost track of time. She comes out of the locker room kind of dazed, like starry eyed and everything kind of the way I was with her she's this way with the Celtics and. I asked her what it was like. I said, oh my God, unbelievable. Those guys are just down-to-earth people like anybody else. She had a wonderful impression of them. They treated her so well. I mean, it was just a wonderful experience. So we're heading out together, and I said, Do You want to catch a cab back to the you know, back to the hotel, back to your hotel, and we'll just share a cab. She said, That'd be great, fine. And I said, and I'll just put it on my expense account since you know I can pay for it. So you take the cab back. Um I get off at my hotel first, because geographically, it's closer. And I thought for a second about inviting her up into the um, media lounge. The hotel, the Marriott Hotel there, was also hosting this huge 24-hour media lounge where it's open day and night for drinks. They had constant food in there. It was just a place to hang out. So I thought about inviting her up there, and then thought to myself, you know, she's been through all this. She ended the night with meeting the Celtics. I can't get any better than that do I want to drag her to the media area now and have all these media guys fawning all over her and, you know, making the fuss and they will want to be asking her cry, all kinds of autographs, all kinds of stuff. I said, no, that's right. So I got out of the cab and said, enjoy the series and hopefully we'll run into each other someday soon. And she said, Bob, thank you so much for a wonderful night. It's, it's a night I'll never forget. And it was just perfect, a perfect ending. Well, there's a follow-up question that doesn't need much of a long answer. Did you ever think to yourself, why didn't I get her number? That did cross my mind briefly. And the other thought was that night, we'll even try to give her a good kiss. But I thought to myself, no, it's better off leaving it just like it is, don't even ask for a phone number because it leaves it as a more natural kind of experience, a natural ending.
0: My thanks to David Haw, Teddy Greenstein, Rick Morrissey and Bob Sakamoto and to the Baseball Hall of Fame, WGN TV, baseball announcer Roger Hoover, CBS Sports and Polygram Pictures for those spectacular highlights. And my thanks, as always, to the people behind the scenes that helped make this wonderful podcast possible. TJ Reeves for putting us on the map, Will Hatzel for his crafty editing, Nick Tochi for our wonderful graphics, and to our new partner, Last Word on Sports, and to our presenting sponsor, Mr. Duct. You can find them at mrductcleaning.com. Tune in next week when we feature another intriguing guest on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote.